The story of Psalm 51 actually begins all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So you can just stay in Psalm 51, but let me read this for you here. 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And then it happened, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch. (laughs) I love that. The kings are going out to battle. David sends Joab. He sends the armies of Israel. They're doing their thing. David remains at Jerusalem. And then all of the damage that ensued from David's adultery, his, his murder of Uriah, all of that happened one afternoon. Afternoon, David's on where? He's on his couch. We talked about how Psalm 51 was really kicked off by, you know, not just David's sin and not just this temptation, but really his abdication of what God has called him to do as king of Israel. That Israel was to be a light to the world, a light to the nations, that God was going to bless all the families on earth through Abraham and through his descendants. And David was the steward of that. But he was chilling. He was scanning Netflix on his couch at 1.30 in the afternoon. So we come in Psalm 51 to the final two verses, verses 18 and 19. Now, there's some debate as to the context for these verses. I think it's this. That David is no longer where he was when the story began. He's taken a long journey to get to verses 18 and 19. He's no longer now hanging back. He's no longer in the comforts of the palace, chilling while his armies are out there doing the Lord's will. He is now back on the throne, resuming his job as king, and he is engaged. And he is engaged with a new level of clarity as to what Israel's job is and what his job is. Right, Having been broken, having experienced the grace of God in his brokenness and taken that journey that we've seen in Psalm 51, David now, he now really appreciates what God has given Israel. What has God given Israel? He's given them the good news. Right? The message that the, the offspring of the woman who come and and destroy the serpent, and bring us back into fellowship with God. He's given Israel the message of salvation, of redemption, of grace and mercy for sinners. David, who has experienced that now very personally, he sees that. And so verses 18 and 19 now, you can kind of see the camera pan out. Like up till now, it's been David, his heart, his spirit, his, his conscience, things he's learning. But now look at verse 18. It's do good to what? Do good to Zion. Do good to Zion. The camera pans out now. David is appreciating the strategic importance of Zion, of God's people, of who they are to be and what they're called to do. He now sees the significance of this, and so his prayer shifts from being about him, but as king, now being for God's people and for God's mission. And we see in verse 19, Then you will delight in right sacrifices, burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and bulls. David now wants to use his resources to fund that operation. 
to fund the mission of God. He sees that the economy of the kingdom runs on the resources God has provided for it in us. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. What wins wars? You know, armies go out to fight, but what they say wins wars is uh, beans, bullets, and bandages. Right? Armies fight battles, but economies win wars. Wars are won by economies. The economy of a kingdom embodies the glory of that kingdom. So in peacetime, a nation that's prospering, what does it mean for it to be prospering? We say it's prospering economically. That's that's just a, a fruit of a of a nation, of of communities of people who are engaged, who are bringing their creativity and their energy and their uh, peacemaking skills and they're getting things done and they're getting the right things done. So it is a sign of a kingdom's glory. And in wartime, it's the economy that saves or ruins the kingdom as well. This is why Jesus talks about, he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. The economy is a sign of the glory of things in our lives. The economy is the embodiment of the glory of a kingdom. Now, we're talking on war, we're talking economy. It, now, this, can, this sounds a lot like newspaper reading, right? This sounds a lot like what you would, you would see on, on the front page of Fox or, or USA Today or something. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about that economy and those wars. And it's important just at the beginning here, as we approach this new year, to remember what, what is the real thing happening in the world. You know, we as Christians, we as the church, we are not in competition with some other sovereign states on planet Earth, right? We're not worried about Argentina's policy or China's or Russia's. Like, what are we doing? What's the real thing the real war, the real battles that's going on right now, we know. Right? The, the real competition, the real battle is between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of darkness. The real competition is between the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining forth from the face of Jesus Christ versus the God of this world blinding the minds of unbelievers lest they turn and see Him. That's the real competition, the real battle The real kingdom's at play here. The real battle is what Psalm 51 describes as the grace and mercy of God. Is that going to win? Or is sin and shame going to cut people off from the true knowledge of God? That's why David goes in verse 13 and says, I want to bring sinners back to you now. They need to know who you are. Is that going to take place? Or is this other thing? Is sin and shame going to drive people further away from God? Is grace going to be extended to more and more people and increase gratitude and praise and thanks to God? Or are people going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and not give honor to God as He is due? That's the competition. Those are the stakes. That's the battle. And David appreciates this. He appreciates this now in a way that he didn't before. He was fine laying on the couch. He was fine doing what he wanted with what he thought was his. But now he sees things differently. And really, Psalm 51 is not just a testament to what David has experienced and what God uh, has instructed him in. It's a recruitment letter for us. 
It's a recruitment letter for God's people. God is inviting us in Psalm 51 to give ourselves with God. To give ourselves with God. I want you to notice something here. It says uh, in verse 19, you notice he says, then, then you, God, will delight in right sacrifices. This is the, the, actually the third time God's delight has been mentioned. So back in verse 6, Behold, God, you delight in truth in the inward being. So God delights to, to teach us wisdom in our secret heart, to, to bring the knowledge of his grace and mercy to us in our places of despair and sin and shame. God delights to do that. The next place is in verse 17. The... Not verse 17, is it? Verse eight, 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. So God is delighted by people who have experienced his grace in their brokenness. So that's what he wants to teach us. That's what he wants to give us. And he loves when people have gone through that. But now, the other thing, the last thing that it says that he is delighted by is right sacrifices. In other words, God delights to do this work in us. But as that work that he's doing in us becomes fruitful, God is delighted to have him join have us join him in this. And that's what those sacrifices and offerings are. God is inviting us to give ourselves with him. So let's look at verse 18 to begin. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Do good to Zion, bless us, and build up the walls of Jerusalem, keep us. This is sort of a kingly version of the high priestly prayer. So this is why I think David is now, he's, he's working as king again. And he's taken the high priestly prayer. Tony will probably pray over us here in a couple minutes. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine on you. That's the high priestly prayer. This is David's version of it. Do good to Zion and build up the walls. He's, he's concerned as a king is with those things. And he's concerned in a new way with Zion and with Jerusalem because he has a renewed appreciation for the significance of God's plan. What is God's plan? Well, here's God's heart. Here's God's purpose. Right? He wants to extend grace and increase gratitude. He wants to extend the knowledge of his grace and increase people's appreciation of that grace, right? So that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. That the earth will be filled with people who appreciate, who know God and appreciate him and respond appropriately to that knowledge. That's the purpose, the objective that God has in mind. How's that going to come about? Here's his plan. God's people... If he wants to extend grace, God's people have to be grace-filled people. If he wants to increase gratitude, God's people have to lead in that by being grateful. That's God's plan. In other words, God's plan is us. God's plan is us. 2023. What's God doing in the world? He's doing Fellowship Bible Church. That's what God is doing in the world. Let me explain this a little bit. Here's the, here's the idea. Here's the operation of God's plan in actual 
Like these are the motions of it. God has poured out all this grace on us, right? Be merciful to us, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. He's done that. He's given us this grace. And when we receive it in the places we need it, right? Our inner being, our secret heart there, when we receive it, what is going to happen? Like when, right, Ben was talking about like, you know, knowing about Joe Biden versus having that conversation. When you've had this conversation with the God of the universe and you've received his love, what happens? You walk away going, oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Right? Gratitude is the natural response to this experience of grace. Gratitude and then you turn and write like you're gracious to others. You're less kind of bent around the axle of the things that used to preoccupy you. You're now more attentive to other people. You're more generous. You're more patient. You're uh, slower to speak and get angry, and you're quicker to praise and encourage. So this is the natural process here. But now, here's the crucial link. When you're gracious to people, you know how they experience what they think just happened? They think God was gracious to them. But they might say, like, hey, thank you for doing that. But you know what you just did when you were gracious to them? When you were a friend to them? When you were generous to them? When you, you withheld something that they deserved uh, negatively and you gave them something good that they didn't deserve positively? You know how they experienced that? As an answer to prayer. Because they were just praying, oh, God, save me from this thing. And you walk in and you say, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. And they're glad for you, but you know who they're giving thanks to? Is God. You walk in and you say, hey, I've got an extra one of these. Would, would you want it, or, or do you know what to do with it? And they were just praying for that? They're going to say thank you, and they're going to say thank you. Right? Our graciousness is indistinguishable for many people from God's graciousness. And so then, God's grace comes to them and increases gratitude, extends grace, increases graciousness, and their, right, their graciousness now goes and reaches other people, and this becomes this entire sequence, this entire chain of events. You guys know how the internal combustion engine goes, right? I don't really, but I watched a video about it. Uh, I couldn't explain it to you, but here's, here's sort of like a, a layman's version of some of the features here, and if I'm wrong here, don't correct me. I don't really need to know, but it's useful for the sermon. So uh, there's like a there's gas, right? And then the boom, right? The, so there's a combustion. <laughs> I'm getting so far so good, right? But there's this, there's this initial spark, right? This is this initial spark that creates this explosion. And the explosion then, right, it compresses things, it exhausts things, and it, and it, comes, it comes back up and creates the conditions for another explosion. So the, the, all the subsequent explosions are all dependent on the first explosion, and all the subsequent explosions are indistinguishable, really, uh, you know, uh, scientifically, uh, from that first explosion. But they're all subsequent to it. So that first explosion happens and it kicks off this, this, this reaction, this process, that then creates the conditions for another explosion. And another explosion. And then thousands and millions of these explosions are happening. And what? Then the engine's running and the vehicle can go. And this is the operation, this is the way that the kingdom is meant to run. That God is gracious to you and me. And that initial explosion of grace in our lives catalyzes a reaction that produces explosions of grace in their life. 
which produces explosions of grace in their life. This is how the knowledge of the glory of God is meant to cover the earth. Through this process of grace. So David prays in verse 18, do good in Zion. Right? He's, he's not praying for uh, the Samar- uh, Samarians, the Persians, the Egyptians here. He's praying for Zion and Jerusalem because he understands the internal combustion processes of the kingdom of God. So he prays for Zion, he prays for Jerusalem, and then look at verse 19, he says, Then you'll delight in right sacrifices, burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and bowls will be offered on your altar. So in verse 18, he's offering this prayer. In verse 19, he's offering these sacrifices. This is David's prayer, and then this is his plan, how he's going to participate in his prayer. He's not just going to pray and then go back to his couch, because he knows this is too valuable. He cares too much about this. He's not just going to pray a kind of a prayer and ship it off. He wants to jump in and, and put some meat on his prayer. And so this is his prayer, and now 19 is his plan. He's going to pray this way, and he's going to put these gifts before God to use. Let's talk about these gifts here. How do we think about the sacrifices and offerings of, that the Bible speaks of? Right? We just need to clarify this for a minute because there's been a lot of unclear teaching about this in the American church over the last couple hundred years. I'll just state the negative proposition first as clearly as I can. God's favor, whether that's negative favor, his protection from things, or positive favor, his blessings, God's favor is never earned or purchased. This is not, not a little bit, not like if you give enough, maybe you get a little bump, nothing. There's zero correlation between our contributions to God and the favors that we are hoping He'll give us. Oh God, stop doing this thing. I'll write any size check to the church. Just make this stop. It just, that's not a thing. It's not a thing. Whether there are occasional correlations there, that, that just occurrences where that does seem to happen and you can kind of draw a link between them, that's just trickery. <laughs> that's not, God's not involved in that. There is no correlation there. So then why are people giving stuff to God? Right? That's, a, that's a huge existential question for Americans. Why would you give something to God in the church if you're not going to get something more back? I don't get it. <laughs> what the Bible has in mind here is that these gifts are expressions of what David has just experienced, right? It's an expression of gratitude. All that you've done. All that the journey David's taken. Thank you so much, God. Here's an expression of my gratitude. Or, also, an expression of my hope for what you're going to do. And David's doing both things here. He's saying, thanks to God. Here's here's just a symbolic token of my appreciation for you. And what you've done? Or here is a symbolic token representation of my heart, of my prayer for this thing. This is how much I care for this thing that I'm asking you to do, God. Symbolized by this gift. In other words, the gift is kind of the prayer enacted. Like the Lord's Supper. Right? This is, this is not the gospel. I remember having a conversation with... Uh, uh, let's just say a, a minister from a different religious tradition, who, as, as we were talking about how we love to preach the gospel to people, he said, well, I, I just give them the gospel when I put the bread in their mouth. 
Right, so that's not what this is. This is not the gospel happening as you eat and drink. Right? It is an enactment of those truths, of God's heart for us. And just eating this or drinking this does nothing to any of us unless we receive it by faith and worship Jesus as a result. Right? So this is an analogous to how these gifts function for David. It joined his prayer and was an enactment of it. The gift was, for David, part of the prayer. That's why verse 18 bleeds into 19 so quickly for him. Do good to Zion. Here's my bowl. Do good to Zion. Here's my bowl. He's putting, uh, wait, we've got this expression, skin in the game. David's putting meat on the altar. He's praying before this altar, looking for God to work, and he's throwing his meat on there to join his prayer. Because God works through verse 18, God works through our prayers. And verse 19, God works through our gifts. Verse 18 and 19 are all about how God works through us. So again, Psalm 51 is God inviting us to give ourselves more wholly, more completely with God. 2023, would you consider giving yourself more wholly and completely with God? So look at verse 19 now. Let's talk about these sacrifices. David is now envisioning himself and God's people investing in God's work. These investments are, you can see right away, the right kind of gifts. You will delight in right sacrifices. Again, God is not going to be, God is not going to barter with us. He's not going to be bought or bought off. He doesn't deal that way because he doesn't need like we need. The only offerings that God wants from His people are from those who are with Him in the giving. Verse 10, the only other usage of the word right here in our chapter, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So David's got the right spirit, and now he can offer the right kind of sacrifices. These are hearts combusting with grace, just like God's. That's the right kind of sacrifice is coming from the right kind of heart, a heart combusting with grace, just like God's heart is. The other thing notice about these gifts is that they're, they're uh, valuable gifts, burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, bulls. So the regular tithes of, that the Old Testament prescribes for Israel, those were the things that sustained the operations of the temple. Those were the things that it, uh, allowed the priests and Levites to, to shepherd God's people and to disciple them in the way they should go. That's what the regular maintenance, maintenance of God's program was. These are something more. Notice uh, it's burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and then bulls. Right? So there's kind of an uh, increasing sense of value. Bur- burnt offerings is a chunk of meat, a leg of lamb. Right? The whole burnt offering is the whole lamb, and then the bull, the entire bull. Let's talk about bulls for a second. When's the last time you saw a bull? It's not really a feature in our life, right? You see like a little picture of it maybe on beef jerky or something that you get. They're trying to sell you an idealized uh, bull. Bulls are for real, aren't they? Bulls are, anybody, any of you guys own a bull? I don't think, nobody's got a bull. You know what a bull meant in the old, old world though? You owned a bull? If you were throwing bulls around at the temple, <laughs> right? It's a sign of wealth, first of all. 
It was uh, also a risky thing to put on the altar. First of all, because financially, you are sacrificing future profit. You're sacrificing uh, future risk. Putting it there. Also, uh, you want to try to kill one of these things? Bulls were bigger back then, and people were shorter. So, <laughs> this was a serious operation. I was just reading about some of the some of the bulls of the ancient world could grow up to six feet tall at the shoulder. That means the neck and head starts there, and and I would have been like a King Saul size person back then, you know, like like everybody else is kind of shorter too. So this you you want to kill one of these guys? So this is a risky, a uh, 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 financially risky as well as personally risky. And here's the other aspect of it: bulls are always associated with deities in the ancient world. Like you go to Egypt, you go to Babylon, you go to Persia, and all of the statues on the the palaces going in with the, the king's face on it, you know what the body was? was a bull. Right? So not only are the Israelites here, they're sacrificing something that's a, a significant financial investment. They're sacrificing something that's very challenging and kind of risky for their financial stability, but it's also a stick in the eye of massive cultural idols. The idols of the empire is being sacrificed here as well. So, you see, increasing value and increasing difficulty in the sacrifice will give an increased value to the community, though. Right? Because if you're going to kill a bull, a bullish amount of a sacrifice had to be shared. Right? This is pre-refrigeration. So, a bull on the altar meant a big party. And a lot of people who didn't eat meat much were eating a lot of meat for the, for the next 36 hours or however long until it started to turn. A bull meant a party and it meant health for a lot of people. I think just, just as a side, there's a couple suggestions here for how we think about giving. Uh, we can see the, the increased burnt offering, whole burnt offering bull. I think it, this suggests that we start with some Start with some gift of gratitude, some gift of, uh, of hope, and then, and then push on that and push on that. There's an increase to this. And then I think the other thing that's interesting here is he puts all this on the altar. So he doesn't just open up his app and give. Like if, I, if, if we had a thing, you know, like we take the communion stuff off of here, but then, you know, next, next Sunday, we're all going to bring in uh, your, your tithes and gifts in, in ones, and they have to be in bags, right? And then you have to come up here and lay it. How would you feel about that, right? We'd all be like, ooh, this church is the worst. Like, I don't want to, right? So what, what is happening when you lead a bull to the altar in the worshiping congregation is you're entering that kind of that tricky space of zeal, leadership, and theater. Right? Jesus kind of interacts with this a little bit. He's like, some of these guys are putting all these bags of money into the temple treasury, but they've got a ton. Versus the widow. Right? So you've got some of that theater comes into play. But... There's just no escape that sometimes, and here's what you know, Paul will say, leaders got to lead. 
if David doesn't put a bull down, right, you know, Jochebed's not going to lay down a leg of lamb. Like somebody's got to walk forward with the big chunk of meat to give us permission and also to say, hey, this is worth it. Leaders, you know, I get that we want to be servant leaders and we like to work in the behind the scenes and in the background and that's very humble and it's wonderful. But sometimes leaders have to be willing to walk up in front of everybody and tip their bowl onto the grill. The other thing about these gifts is that they serve God's strategy. They serve God's strategy. You see this, right? So in verse 13, he says, I want to teach transgressors and sinners your ways. But in verse 18, he says, let's do good to Zion. Right again, the, the, the grace combustion engine here. Do good to Zion in Jerusalem and sinners are going to be drawn into this. Zion in Jerusalem is going to go out to the sinners. Right? These gifts were not about what David thought should be done. It wasn't about David feeling important. All the meat went on the same altar, went on your altar in your temple, and it was all eaten by the same people, the priests, the Levites, and the worshiping community. If you wanted to take your meat and put it on a different altar or, or give it to God for different purposes, you know what that was? That was a high crime. This was an investment in the temple and in the temple community. You were providing lots of meals for the priests and for their families, and you were creating a huge opportunity for hospitality and celebration and dispersing financial and physical health into the community. Everybody in that, that congregation didn't have to worry about what they were going to eat for the next three days. right? And they were getting nutrients. right? They were, so there's, you're dispersing these benefits into the congregation. This is, in other words, grace extending. And you know how everybody who ate that bowl felt? They felt so, so thankful. Grace extending, gratitude increasing. And that then was designed to spill out and spill over. It made God's people more true to who they were called to be, and it made them more beautiful to those around them. So here's how Psalm 51 ends. God's training. God wants us to give ourselves with him. God wants us to give ourselves with him. Has the with been bothering you this whole time? Because <laughs> right? normally the phrase is God wants us to give to him. But what Psalm 51 is inviting us, God's the one delighted. God's the one doing all this stuff. He doesn't need you to give anything to him. He wants us to come and give with him. Because Right? God has already given. He's already given himself wholly and completely, right? This is what Jesus is. Is God given himself wholly and completely to us? This is what we celebrate at the Lord's table. God has given himself wholly and completely. He doesn't need us to give to him. He's given it all. He wants us to give with him, to join him in this Delight. God loves a cheerful giver because that person is joining his delight. That person is joining him in being delighted. Now, friends, public service announcement interruption. Here at Fellowship Bible Church, we don't need you to give. We don't, we're, we're not trying to squeeze you here. 
We're not sure, you know, if you feel like grumpy whenever, if we're talking about money and giving and you're grumpy, I understand. If you feel reluctant to go with God a little further, you, you, you don't want to read your Bible this year, you don't want to, whatever the thing is, you're reluctant, you're hesitant, you're not sure you really are in with Jesus as much as the guy up front sounds like he is. That's okay. We're just glad you're here. We trust that the Lord's in your life working wherever you are, going to wherever you need to be. We're not worried about that. So no judgment, no grief, no shame. But we do want you to know that, that it's better out there. We do want you to know that there's sweetness out there, that there's more. That there's more, and it's good more. End of public service announcement. How do we interpret all this stuff about temples and priests and sacrifices? It's interesting. I'm not going to explain exactly how they do this, but when we go into the New Testament, all the apostles, they compare God's people to temples, to priests, and to sacrifices. We are compared to all of these things by the apostles in the New Testament. You know, just as in the temple, the local church is composed of a membership, a worshiping community, and an organization, an operation, both of which are defined by our shared story of grace and brokenness. Right? That's what links us all together and what defines our operation as well. And we're driven to see other sinners return to God and sing His praises. So the same, same defining and driving purposes. And just as in Psalm 51, when we appreciate the significance of what God has called us to, to do and to be, when we, when we appreciate the, the centrality of this operation here to what actually is, I know the war in Russia and Ukraine has made our gas prices go up. It's just not central to what actually is. I know the bots on Twitter are causing all sorts of trouble. It's just not central. I know they're having trouble with batteries for EV. It's just not central. It's just not. It's just not. It's not central. It's not our thing. Our thing is the central thing. And when we appreciate that, we want to give what we have. We want to, we want to give our meat to our prayers to see Jesus be glorified. Listen as we close to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And we all have gifts. We all have grace given to us by Jesus. So let's use those gifts. Let's extend that grace and let's do it with generosity, with zeal, with cheerfulness, with sincerity, with affection, with eagerness, and with enthusiasm. The goal of Psalm 51 is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The final truth of Psalm 51 is that the economy of the kingdom runs on the resources that God has provided for it in us. And so God is inviting us 
to give ourselves along with him and to enter his delight so that in the words of Jesus, that our joy may be like his joy and our joy may be full. Let's pray. And as we go to prayer, I'd like you to take a moment and ask the Lord if what He would like you to give with Him in the service of Jesus and His kingdom as we go into 2023. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and we give you praise for the inexpressible gift that you've given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. That we, though we are sinners, though we are broken people, we have experienced your love, your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your many rich, overwhelming, abundant blessings. You've made us children. You've adopted us. You've brought us in. Lord, all of the blessings of the gospel we have freely through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we we thank you for that. And Lord, we we just ask that, that that would have the effect in our lives that it ought to. that we would be grateful and gracious people, the kind of people we want to be. Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation, the joy of your salvation. Uphold us with a willing spirit. Because there's sinners out there who need to learn the truth about you. And we want to be a part of that. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.